Everybody say gospel. gospel. Now say it like you're excited about it. Gospel. gospel. All right. What's the best news? I, I don't want you to say it out loud, but I want you to think for a moment about the best news that you've ever received in your whole life. The news that like, made you so excited or so relieved that you could feel it deep down inside. Like Not just good news like, oh good, I don't have to go to work today, but good news like, wow, that's life changing. Can you think of a time when that happened? Um, Tori and I have had a lot of exciting experiences in our lives. We've had a lot of good news. We've had a lot of bad news in our lives. But I can remember one time specifically that I remember waiting for news. And when the news came, there was this incredible feeling of exhilaration because it had to do with one of our children. Way back when we only had one child, when Caleb was our only one, back when we had both time and money still, um, one child, um, Caleb got sick. We were still living in Defiance, Ohio, I believe, or was it Indiana? It might have been Indiana. We were there, somewhere down there. It, it's been so long, the memory's kind of fading, but um, we took him to the doctor because he'd been sick and we weren't sure what was wrong. And the doctors took a look at him. And they said, we think he may have spinal meningitis. And so they sent us to a hospital. We went to do some tests. And I remember them trying to get the IV in. They needed to put an IV in so they could draw fluid or something. And, and again, it was just so confusing and we were kind of just take, overwhelmed with it because we didn't know what that would mean. We didn't know if that meant, you know, he could die. We didn't know, you know, anything about this, this whole process. And they were acting as if it was extremely serious. And so I can remember standing outside of this room where they were going to take care of this problem. They, or they were going to go in and do tests. They were going to pull out some fluid, I think, from his spinal column or something so that they could test it and do all that good stuff. And I remember standing there with Tori, and we were both bawling our eyes out because we could hear him crying on the other side of the door. And they would not let Tori go in and hold. She said, if you, if you let me hold him, you'll be able to get the IV in way easier. I can calm him down. I can be a calming presence. They said, no, I'm sorry, it's our policy. We don't let moms in there. I'm sure they'd probably had some hysterical moms in there in the past, you know, and they didn't want her in there. And finally, they came out and said, we're just, we're having a really difficult time. It's going to take a little more time. And she finally said, nope, give me my baby. I'll hold him or you don't do it. So she went in the room and she took a hold of that baby and he quieted right down because Caleb knows what's good for him. And they were able to get the IV in. Well, then, of course, she had to hand him back over, and she went back out, and we were waiting with bated breath. They, they did the test that they needed to do, and I can remember waiting for the results for that test. And the moment that it came through, nope, not spinal meningitis, probably just a virus. Is that what doctors always say when they have no idea what it is? Probably just a virus. It seems like I hear that all the time. But, man, I'll tell you, when we heard the news that that little boy, that little baby did not have spinal meningitis i can tell you that a load lifted off of our shoulders and it was a feeling like you know you had wings and you could fly it was just unbelievable the amount of emotion that that good news brought to us and i got to tell you that that kind of feeling if you can remember a time when that happened for you that's the kind of feeling that that i remember feeling when i accepted jesus into my heart for the first time when i when i recognized the good news of the gospel of jesus and its impact to be able to change my life from death into life everlasting that i no longer had to live chained to the bondage of sin but that i could live a life of freedom apart from sin for the most part i've made a few errors since then from time to time 
But I can remember that feeling, and you know what? That is the feeling that we should be trying to communicate. That is the good news that we should be trying to communicate to a lost and dying world around us because the gospel is good news. The word gospel describes the good news of Jesus coming to this earth and living among us and dying on the cross and rising again and the fact that that life that he lived gives us the opportunity to be God's children once again. We are studying the four books of the Bible that are literally called the Gospels because of the good news that they contain. They contain the whole story of Jesus from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. And so we're studying those four books from now through Easter. And we'll be selecting a passage from the Gospels each and every week. Today, I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 uh, through 25, I believe. I forgot, 12 to 23. Oh, I have through 25. So I read two verses you didn't have last time, didn't I? Yeah, poor Steve. I just do things like that all the time. Anyway, um, let's read it together and then we'll kind of dig in a little bit deeper. This is right after, you know, last week we talked about Jesus and and the fact that he had that encounter with John. This is after his baptism and, and stuff like that. So let's read it together. Now when Jesus heard that John, meaning John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fill what was, fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. How many of you think they were fighting at the time, probably, over how to do it? If there's two brothers and they're trying to accomplish something together, I'm thinking they were fighting. But Jesus doesn't, it doesn't mention that, so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. And he said to them, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, Simon the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, for crying out loud. Um, That's not in there, for crying out loud part. And followed him. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread through all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them all. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a great start to a ministry, doesn't it? A whole bunch of people follow you. What a great way to begin the ministry. But really what we have in this passage, there are three things that we kind of learn from the life of Jesus and from what he taught that will help us, I think, to be able to frame the rest of his life if we understand them. So let me share them with you. I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. The first one is his message was simply this, repent. The call that he made was to follow, and that word means more than you think it does. And finally, his method was to bring healing wherever he could. His message was repent, 
Um, That word repent is a powerful word. It means to stop something and and change direction. It means to change your mind. The Greek word is metaneo from the root, I think it's metanoia actually. And it literally means to change your mind, to think a different way, which will of course lead to a change in life. If you think differently, you tend to start living differently. One precedes the other. And so this word means literally to repent, to rethink, to stop thinking one way and to think differently. And as a result of that, to stop doing what you've been doing and to do something different. Anybody who's had a dramatic salvation experience understands what the word repent means. Now me, I grew up in the church. I'm pretty sure that by the time I asked Jesus into my heart, I had committed exactly one sin maybe. I don't know. I'm kidding. That's a joke. You know that, right? Um, But I was a good kid. Like, I didn't have this great backstory of, of how God saved me from drugs and alcohol and robbing banks and being in jail and all that good stuff. You guys are a little slow today. I mean, you know, if... I I prayed at times that I had a testimony like Dennis so that I could, (laughs) you know, I I didn't have one of those abrupt turns. I got saved when I was so young. To be honest, I don't even know if I remember the first time because every time a preacher got up in front and said, you should be at this altar repenting, I was up at the altar repenting. Every time a preacher said, you better come and make sure, I was up here making sure. I think I confessed and repented of sins I didn't even commit just because I wanted to make sure I was good with God. I mean, I grew up in an environment where they scared you out of hell, and hell was not a place you wanted to be. And so I did everything I could not to do that. But listen, all of us have to have a story in some way, shape, or form of repentance where even though we're headed in one direction, when God gets a hold of our lives, we change direction and we become a different person. That's the nature of the gospel at its core, to change, to be different, to rethink. I love that word rethink, and I I think that the word repentance leads us to know that we need to rethink everything. Um, Let me give you a few examples. We need to rethink what we believe to be right and wrong. I mean, obviously, when you follow Jesus, you become subject and you become aware of some of the guidelines and the laws that God put in the Bible that that govern the way that we live, not to hedge us in or to keep us bound, but to free us from the effects of sins that that we can avoid once we know that they're a problem. But I think we need to, to rethink think our whole idea of right and wrong and how close we're willing to get to those things that we're walking away from because many of us who follow Jesus we maybe repent of our sins and and we kind of wander away from them but maybe we don't make an abrupt right hand turn maybe we just kind of walk the line beside them for a while just in case we want to pick them back up again right because some of those sins are a pretty important part of our lives, and if we get rid of them completely, you know, we might, we might want to just dabble in that a little bit again, and so we kind of try to walk that line, leaving ourselves susceptible to temptation because we keep our sin close to us instead of walking away from it. And I think we need to rethink how we do that. 1 Thessalonians 5.16 says that we should abstain from every form or appearance of evil. In the NASB it says form, but that word could easily mean appearance too. And as a kid, I always thought that meant, man, if it even looks like it could be wrong, you should avoid it, right? Now from the Greek, that technically may not be the right translation, but let me tell you something, it's probably a good suggestion. Amen? And if if it even looks wrong, don't do it. Why? Because not only do you run the risk of you yourself falling into sin, but you run the risk of the testimony that you have being harmed by the fact that you're doing something questionable 
abstain from all appearance. We need to walk away from sin. Don't flirt with it. Run from sin. Run from the risk of it enslaving you once again. We need to rethink what we believe about right or wrong. We need to rethink our values. What do you value in life? Because what you value a lot of times equates to what you love, and, and what you love determines what you will invest your time in. I can tell you what you love if I can see your calendar, right? I can tell you what you love if, if you give me a synopsis of your week. I, I can tell what you love based on what you choose when you have free time to spend your time and effort and finances in. And I got to tell you, there's at least one person in this church that likes football and fishing a little bit too much. <laughs> They're two separate people, I should say. But You know, we all have things that we love. But what do we really value? What are we willing to pour our time in? Because we value the things, we need to value the things that last for eternity and not the things that are temporary here on this earth. We need to rethink what we value. We need to rethink what our priorities are. We need to prioritize our relationship with God above all else. And that means that some other things should get knocked down a peg or two on our priority list. Amen? Personally, I think the biggest one for me is entertainment. We live in an entertainment society. It got really quiet when I said that because you all love your Netflix. I know you do. Can you imagine? I mean, I hear the budgets for some of these movies that they're producing these days. You know, $80 billion or some ridiculous thing. I think our society has some serious priority issues. Can you imagine if we took what we spend in the entertainment industry, which is basically just to amuse us because we're too lazy to amuse ourselves and keep ourselves busy. If we took what we spend in the entertainment industry alone, we could solve every problem that is currently facing our world because it would be billions and billions and billions of dollars. I don't have the numbers, but I would love to see the yearly spend on entertainment versus our national debt. I bet we could pay that sucker off, don't you think? <laughs> it is amazing what we spend as a culture on entertainment. But imagine the time that we spend on our entertainment. Friends, we need to knock that down a couple notches because I gotta be honest with you, being entertained is a never-ending pit because you watch one show and you like it and then you get bored with it and you gotta see something else and there's always this never-ending thirst for another show, isn't there? It never ends. It's not lasting. It's a flash in the pan. We got to get our priorities right. We need to move entertainment down the list. We need to move social media down the list. Amen? Now, I'm not talking about the actual connections you make to real people that you don't live close to that are actually healthy because you don't ever get to see them. That kind of social media is good. But this whole idea that we need to be on social media looking at and finding out what everybody else is saying, what everybody else is doing so we can compare ourselves to what everybody else thinks is ludicrous. And it is not healthy for us. I got to tell you, I, I look at Facebook for about 10 minutes, I start getting depressed because I'm not nearly as good looking as somebody, or I'm not nearly as thin as somebody, or I'm not nearly as smart as so-and-so, or that person said something that triggered me again. Now I got to type something nasty at them. How many of you do that on a regular basis? I want to see confession. All right, there's a few of you willing to admit it. The rest of you I know do it anyway. Listen, social media is a trap. Here's what's fun about Facebook. Almost everything on Facebook now is stuff that doesn't pertain to any of my friends or connections. Almost everything on Facebook says at the top, I believe it's the left-hand corner, suggested for you. Do you know what that means? That means somebody paid money to get that in front of my face. 
We're like, no, 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 that's just another person who's on Facebook that their algorithm thinks I might like. Nope. They paid money to get that in front of your face. And the things that they suggest for you are basically click traps to try to get you to click on their services, their product, or something so that you can go down a rabbit hole that you probably won't come back from for a while. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We think that it's a platform for connecting with other people. The only people most of us are connecting with is advertisers and influencers. Lord, help us, right? Listen, drop it down the list. I'm not saying do away with it. It can have a positive effect to connect with people who are actually real. But most of us use it in the wrong ways. Drop it down the list, right? Um, we, we, we need to, to start dropping down the list, the amassing of wealth, and, and take that, move it down the list. Listen, God, there's no prize in heaven for the person with the biggest 401k that they left on earth, right? It isn't there. We've got to start reprioritizing. We should prioritize the things in life that will make us more like Jesus, make love a priority. Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Let's prioritize love above some of that other stuff. Let's prioritize serving. Let's make that a priority in our lives because Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of God is the one who serves. So if you want to be great, you have to serve. Let's put that on the priority list. Let's make worship, both corporate and private, a priority. Let's come together as the body of Christ and sing our lungs out. Not just sit and watch. Not just sit and listen to see if Pastor Jeff's voice is going to crack this week because he's abusing it too much. But let's come together and let's really bear our souls before the Lord. Let's pray together with fervency. Let's open the word together and learn together. Let's sing with all of our might, but not just in a public setting, but in a private setting as well. Um, let's, let's take our personal worship a little more seriously. Whether you're reading the Bible or whether you're praying and spending time in prayer, or whether you like to sing, a lot of us like to sing. You know where I do my best singing worship? By myself in the car. If you pull up to me next to a stoplight, you're going to get a show. Let me tell you, because I sing in the car, and man, I just know nobody outside the car can hear me, and then one day I pulled up to a, like a stoplight, and I'm singing my lungs out, and the person walking across in front of my car actually stopped and turned and looked right at me, and I'm like, they can hear me outside the car, and I was not singing pretty at that point. It was, you know, squeal and try to reach those high notes, right, Mark? You know what I'm talking about, right? Just squeal on those high notes. Private worship, you know, in the car is best for me. I don't know where you like to worship, but let's prioritize spending time with our God in scripture, in prayer, in worship, whether it's in the car, whether it's in your prayer closet, whether it's in your bedroom, wherever it might be. Let's prioritize worship. Listen, we gotta rethink our priorities. We need to rethink our relationships and build the relations that sharpen us and encourage us in our faith and instead of the relationships that do nothing but distract us and drag us down. And again, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that when you become a believer in Christ, you should forsake your old relationships because those are the connecting points that you need to be an influencer for Christ to actually show them Jesus. That's not what I'm saying, but everybody probably has relationships that are pulling them away from their relationship with God instead of toward it. Listen, sometimes the healthiest relationships you can have as a Christian are the hardest ones to have with people who are willing to tell you the truth and hold you accountable for what they know to be true and what you know to be true. And we need to have those kind of relationships and rethink them. We need to rethink um, our relationship with things, with, 
possessions with wealth. Possessions are here today but gone tomorrow. They never bring true happiness. You'll only end up serving them in the long run. I can remember when Tori and I were in college, we got married before we went to college, for those of you that don't know, and all through college we wanted to buy a house, you know, because we wanted something that was ours, and thank the good Lord he did not allow us that opportunity when we were in Florida, because we would have been stuck with that forever, like you can't sell trailers in Florida, and that's what we were looking at. I remember though when we finally got our first house, I swear to you, when we signed the papers on that house, I heard the angels singing in heaven. It was like, oh, we've arrived. We are homeowners. We have our own place. We can do whatever we want to with this house. No more landlords. No more all that trouble. And we were just so happy and so uplifted. (laughs) Funny story. um, We closed on the house. Tori went into the hospital to have Josh while I moved us, while she was in the hospital having Josh. So she got pregnant just to get out of moving. (laughs) She did that like three times. But anyway, we love that. Oh, man, we have our own house. And you know what? We were elated until stuff started to break. Call the landlord. Oh, wait a minute. There is no landlord. How many of you have that experience, right? Suddenly you find yourself having to fix everything. And you know what? When we moved from Defiance to Midland, that house didn't sell for four years. And it became a millstone around our neck. Listen, the possessions that you're striving for are just going to end up making you serve them in the long run. We need to rethink that. We need to think like Jesus. We need to change our mindset. His message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we need to change our mindset from thoughts about this world to the thoughts of the kingdom of heaven and think like Jesus. The second thing is his call was to follow. Um, I I like this story because, you know, he chooses these, these two brothers or two sets of two brothers, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and he literally walks by them and just says, hey, follow me, and they just pick up and go. Does that seem odd to anybody else? I mean, that just doesn't seem like it would be something that would happen today. Well, this guy walks by, says, follow me, and they just go. And, and to make matters worse, as I already alluded to, I mean, their dad is sitting right there. Zebedee's still in the boat. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, if I was Zebedee, I'd be like, you can't even finish helping me mend the nets before you run off on your little journey? I mean, come on, man. Their father's sitting right there, and it always has seemed strange to me that they just picked up like that and left. But then in our minds, I think we spiritualize it and say, well, of course it was the Son of God. Jesus must have had some magical power over them that they were just willing to forsake everything. But that wasn't it. In fact, if you look deeper into the culture that they were living in, it would have been actually an honor for them to just pick up and go with Jesus. We think that it's odd, but it really was a part of their culture. It would have been the ultimate honor for many Jews uh, to be chosen to follow a rabbi. You see, there's this whole process that Jews of their time went through as a part of their education. And there's this website that I found recently. It's by a guy by the name of, of um, oh, I'm Ray Vanderlaan, I think is his name. He does a video series called That the World May Know, And again, I don't agree with all of his conclusions, but he does some really solid research on the culture of the time, and he actually does the videos from like places in the Middle East that are meaningful in the Bible, so they're really cool videos. I've only ever found them on VHS, though. In fact, I think we have some in our library. If anybody still has a VCR, 
Welcome to borrow them. But now he has a website where he's written articles and put a lot of this on the website. And so he goes through this whole description, and I don't want to get into the whole thing, but basically, you know, when a child is a certain age, like five, they, they begin to study the Torah. They're able to do that. When they get a little older, they, they go further into the Bible until by the time they graduate high school or, you know, high school level or teenage level, they would move on into greater things. And a select few would be chosen by a rabbi. But the process was this. You would have to go to a rabbi and ask that rabbi if you could become one of their followers. And the rabbi would look at you and try to determine whether or not you were worthy of becoming someone who could follow them, follow. And so as, as the rabbi would decide, a lot of the people that wanted to follow a rabbi didn't get the opportunity and were left to go into the workforce and basically that was the end of their education, although they would still come to the, the, obviously the synagogues and they would read scripture, they would debate scripture, that was a part of their lives. And so this whole process went through. So as we look at this, following a rabbi was really an honor in their culture. It, hey guys, Hey, Caleb. Thank you, Caleb. So as they went through this process of education, many of them weren't left with a rabbi to follow. And so they had to figure out what they were going to do with their lives. So as these guys are sitting there and Jesus comes along and the rabbi, instead of them having to ask him, asked them, can you imagine what an honor that must have been for them? They, here they are just doing their work, and a rabbi who is growing in popularity in the area suddenly walks by and says, would you come and follow me? And they're like, man, that's like a free trip to college today, right? Absolutely. And they picked up and they left. And why was Zebedee okay with it? Because the dream of every parent for their child was probably that they would get picked up by a, a, a good rabbi and they would learn so that they would someday be a rabbi themselves and have it. The, let me just read you kind of a description from his website of how this whole process went. He says this, a few, very few of the most outstanding uh, Beth Midrash students, that was kind of the, the high school level at the time, sought permission to study with a famous rabbi, often leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time. So when you studied a rabbi, you didn't just learn from him in the classroom, you actually went with them wherever they would go. Um, these students were called um, Talmudim. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. In Hebrew, which is translated disciple. There is much more to a Talmud than what we would call a student. A student wants to know what the teacher knows in order to get a grade to complete the class or the degree or even out of respect for the teacher. In other words, we take tests today just to pass the class. Amen? That's the only reason I wanted a grade. Get me through this class so I can get on to the next thing. It wasn't like that for them. A Talmud wants to be like the teacher. That is to become what the teacher is. That meant the students were passionately devoted to their rabbi and noted everything that the rabbi did or said. This meant that the rabbi-Talmud relationship was a very intense and personal system of education. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scriptures, his students, his Talmudim, listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. And eventually they would become teachers passing on a lifestyle to their Talmudim. So it was much more than just a classroom experience. Do you get what I'm saying here? It was literally a lifestyle. When Jesus said, come and follow me, these guys knew they were gonna be walking and talking and sleeping where Jesus slept and eating where he ate and, and they would be running errands for him and they would be observing his life for the next few years. And that, that's serious, man. That is way more than I ever thought it was. 
just to be a follower. You had to literally pick up your life and go and follow. To follow Jesus means literally to study his words, his thoughts, his actions in order to become more like him. That's how they would have understood it. And so when they said yes to following Jesus, they were agreeing to become like Jesus. Okay, I like the historical stuff. Some of you are getting bored with this. Here's what that means to us. Listen, the call to them was to follow. The call to us is the same. We're not just called to learn about Jesus. We're called to learn everything we can about not only his words and his teachings, but his life and his thoughts and everything that we can uh, accumulate so that we can become like him. Listen, it is not a matter of just education to follow Jesus. It is a matter of emulation. Following Jesus is not just education, it's emulation. See, now, I thought that was pretty good. I mean, that's almost quotable. That might be on Instagram later if it, yeah. Yeah. Education versus emulation. One simply means I learned the stuff. The other means I actually became like my teacher, my rabbi. That is what God's call is for us. Not just to learn about him, but to become like him so that we can in turn teach others about him and they can become like Jesus or at least like the Jesus they see in us. Friends, let me tell you something. This is why it's so important for us not just to teach with our mouths, but to live what we teach before people. You know why discipleship isn't working in America today? In case you hadn't figured it out yet, it isn't. We're not making disciples. We're making students, but we're not really making disciples who make other disciples because that's part of being a disciple is passing that on to others. And the issue is this. We spend all of our time being discipled by people we've never met. Christian bestsellers are the prime way to learn how to be a follower of Christ, right? Everybody wants to read another book. Everybody wants to find the latest and greatest. But listen, the message that they're projecting in the book is one thing, but you can't see the author live that out. And therefore, it will be a process that will not succeed because it, it, it isn't personal. They aren't there. And to be perfectly honest, part of the issue with that is as we hear these teachers that teach from afar off is all we hear is what they say and we don't see the way that they live. And oftentimes we find out after the fact that what they were proclaiming from the pulpit and in their books isn't the way they were living in their person. And so all they're doing is saying words instead of living a life of discipleship. Friends, that is why it's so imperative that we don't just teach the gospel, but that we live it out because without that living out portion, it is almost impossible for other people to really see Jesus in us. And that's why it's important that when we do discipleship, and and we're going to be making a run at this, man. I've got a book that I'm gutting my way through and we're going to be trying to start a, a whole new process of this. We need to do it person to person so that we can see each other living out what Jesus taught. And apply that. Friends, I'm not saying it's not a good thing to read a good book. Information is always power, right? But sometimes you've got to have that personal touch. And especially if you want to become like someone, you need to see not only what they say, but you need to see the way that they live so that you know that what they say has integrity. Do you get me? I think I said that in the most confusing way possible, actually. Listen to it on the internet three or four times. Maybe it'll sink in. Jesus' call was to follow, to them and to us. Our call is not just education, it's emulation. We are being called to be like 
Jesus today. Last but not least, and I promise I'll make this quick, his method was to heal. I don't believe anybody followed, uh, the crowds rather, didn't follow Jesus and, and flock to Jesus because of his teaching, because his teaching was pretty rough. Yeah, take up your cross daily and follow me. In other words, be ready to be killed on a daily basis. That sounds like a great marketing statement for a new movement, doesn't it? Yeah, come with me and get ready to die. Yeah, how many of you would follow that if I put that on Facebook? Oh yeah, I would love to die today. That's fantastic. And please make it by a cross, the most difficult death you can find. Jesus' teachings were not easy. They weren't attractive. The reason the crowds followed him was because he healed them. He gave them restoration. He gave them wholeness. Whether it was a physical need or, or whether some of them were apparently um, uh, filled with demons or uh, there was paralytics, there were all these different problems that Jesus went to the people and fixed. And not just the miraculous ones. He had, he had common conversations with women and servants and Samaritans that nobody else would even talk to. And, and don't think that having a conversation with someone that no one else will talk to doesn't bring healing. Because it will. Listen, Jesus' method was healing. He met the people where they were and he tried to bring health and wholeness and restoration into their lives so that they could once again feel like the creatures God created them to be. And I don't know about you, but there are days when I don't feel like that creature. Amen? Because all of our lives are broken to some degree. And when we embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, part of what God does is he begins to put the pieces back together and make us into the people that God intended for us to be all along. And there is joy in that, and there is hope in that, and that is the best possible news you could ever hear. I'm I'm becoming what God intended for me to be. Listen, his method was healing. And here's what I think. I think as a church, And as individuals, we need to start looking for opportunities to offer healing to a world that desperately needs it. Jesus himself said it. He gave us the examples so we'd know how to do it. He said, you know, he'd said it in the least of these speech, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase. He said, if you find someone who's hungry, do what? Feed them. It's common sense, right? Following Jesus is so hard. If you find someone who's thirsty, do what? Give them something to drink. If you find someone who is lonely, do what? Visit them. If you find someone who's sick, comfort them, help them, do what you can, basically. Find a need, meet the need, and do so in the name and while living out the character of Jesus. And friends, if the church decided that that was going to be our method, I think we would see the church grow exponentially. But you know what? A lot of churches, and I know we've talked about this, and we're trying to turn away from this, but a lot of churches are just trying to grow through big flash and entertainment and all of this stuff. Listen, I don't have any problem with that other than the fact that that's not the method Jesus used. Jesus brought healing into people's lives. And because of that, the people that followed him, that were healed, that were put back together, they would never leave his side. The crowds did. The crowds left him. But I guarantee you those people he healed never did because he touched their hearts, he touched their lives. Now, some of you are thinking, well, pastor, we don't really do, you know, miraculous healings anymore. Well, I think that's us, not him, to be perfectly honest. And and I'm not saying that every time we have worship, we have to have somebody raised from the dead. That's not my point. Healing can come in a lot of different ways, but it begins when we start caring about the needs of those around us. 
and we simply do what we can to help. I saw yesterday, and I, I used this illustration this morning, Dennis, so I have to use it now. I saw yesterday a group of people in this church that were doing their best to serve Dennis's family in the midst of the funeral of his sister. They came in on a Saturday. They, they did it downstairs because we already had something in the fellowship hall, so we put the ladies through it this week, and we had some guys that stepped in. We had some other people, and you know what? Those people, because of their service to the family, helped bring healing. It can be something that simple, friends. Look for the need. Try to meet it. Find a way to heal. His message was repent. His call was to follow. And his method was to heal. Friends, just as it was for them, so it should be for us. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for uh, allowing us to have this time again opening your word and, and seeing in this first part of Jesus' ministry, what was so important to him. His, his basic message was so simple. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And certainly he taught a lot of other things. We're going to actually study a lot of those things over the next few weeks. But that was the basics. That was the summary given by the writers of the Gospels. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I pray that you would help us to be a people who are never afraid to repent of our sins, to turn and, and go a different direction, to stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right things, to stop thinking the wrong thoughts and start thinking the right thoughts. God, I pray that you would help us to see that the call to follow him means more than just putting your name on a church's membership role or showing up once in a while. It has to do with us learning to become disciples and students of who Jesus was so that we can become like him, not just know about him, but so that we can become like him and embody all that he embodied. I pray that you would help us to see that the greatest methodology we could ever employ to reach a lost and dying world is to offer the help that they need when they need it and to simply be sensitive to the leading of your spirit as you lead us to those with needs that we have the ability to meet. God, we pray that you would help us when we hear the call to follow you, that we would get up, drop everything, and do exactly what you ask of us because you did so much for us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Turn to your neighbor and say, follow me to Taco Bell, and you can be dismissed. <laughs>